Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, a documentary produced by students at the University of Central Florida looks at the outrageous abuses of the Johns Committee in the mid-20th century. I think one of the scariest things about this documentary, aside from the fact that it's only 50 years ago, is that... We have this feeling that this could happen again. We'll visit what remains of a 1910 fish camp and discuss the concept of honor in the 19th century. It's not opening doors for ladies and not cheating on exams. It is really a matter of your sense of yourself as others see you. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. They were calling in students as well as faculty and staff and harassing them. They questioned me for 15, 16, 17 hours. I was there all night till the next day. I was terrified when they called me in there. I I just didn't know what to expect. I denied everything, and that, that was the end of it. So I was afraid of everything, who I talked to, what happened. So we ended up not going to classes. I thought everybody was watching me. The Committee is an award-winning half-hour documentary produced by students in the Honors College at the University of Central Florida. The film explores the outrageous activities of the Johns Committee. Formed by the Florida Legislature in 1956, the Johns Committee investigated what it labeled subversive activities in state colleges, civil rights groups, and suspected communist organizations. Eventually, the primary focus of the Johns Committee was to remove homosexual teachers and students from Florida universities. Filmmaker and student Monica Monticello describes how this cooperative documentary effort came together. Well, it's called an interdisciplinary seminar, which is hosted by the Burnett Honors College, and it was in conjunction with the UCF Film Department as well as the UCF History Department, and students from all majors within the Honors College were welcome to join the class and help in the production. Honor students from UCF's film program helped to give the project its professional look, and honor students from the history department made sure that the content was strong. But as filmmaker and student Logan Grady explains, a diverse group of students from a variety of disciplines participated. There was a lot. Um, We had students that were um, from accounting majors uh, to digital media and art majors uh, to more traditional film and TV production Um, some that are journalism. There's a lot of different majors in the class. It wasn't just straight film students. Most people are aware of the communist witch hunt led by Joseph McCarthy that ruined many innocent lives in the mid-20th century. Less familiar is Florida's spinoff of McCarthy-era paranoia, the Johns Committee, which led interrogations of university professors and students in an attempt to eliminate homosexuality. Filmmaker and student Amy Simpson. Yeah, I think that the Johns Committee was sort of directly spawned by the McCarthy era and that kind of fear because it was sort of originally about finding communists in the NAACP as well as among homosexuals but then it sort of turned into its own 
you know, witch hunt for the homosexual students and teachers, especially in Florida. The Johns Committee was formed by state senator and former Florida governor Charlie Johns in 1956 with the help of the other conservative pork choppers in the very conservative Florida legislature. After failing to link communism to the NAACP, the Johns Committee turned its attention to homosexuals in 1961. Monica Monticello and Logan Grady. Charlie Johns was a state senator, and he uh, was the Senate president, and he became the governor of Florida after the previous governor died. And he lost his re-election bid, and as a result, went back to the Senate and created his Florida Legislative Investigation Committee, which he saw as his own personal state FBI. Initially, um, what he was trying to do with his Johns Committee uh, was, as explained in the film, too, it's, it's, you've, they've got uh, the whole McCarthyism and that issue coming about, and they're trying to root out the communists um, and get rid of the NAACP at the same time. Um, but their their efforts along those uh, veins were kind of uh, impeded, especially because the NAACP locked up on a lot of court cases. So eventually they, the Johns Committee just refocused its efforts on homosexuals because they saw that as a more viable thing that they could um, expel, so to speak, um, and not face as many issues in, in actually attaining that goal. So they kind of turned away from communism and the NAACP and they started going after LGBT students and teachers. This documentary covers what is ancient history to these student filmmakers. Some of their parents weren't even born when the Johns Committee was active, but interviewing people who lived through the outrageous abuses of power inflicted on them by the committee made this history real for these students. Uh, it definitely did, especially because, I mean, it took us so long to find people who had been interrogated who would cooperate with us. And so for a while, we didn't even think we would have anyone from that era. We thought we would just have, you know, professors and experts talk to us. And then finally we started getting, you know, these people who had been interrogated. Um, and it was just hearing their stories made it a completely different experience. And uh, it was just so real because... You know, it's history, but it's really not that long ago. And, you know, these people were there and it happened to them. And now they were in front of us talking about it. It took the uh, the idea of what we were researching from just words on a paper and, you know, what happened, sort of quote-unquote history, to something, someone's actual life, to someone's personal effects and what happened to them and what they experienced went through directly. Uh, and it speaks a lot to the ingenuity of the human spirit, too, when you see these people. And you see them, you know, years after what had happened to them and what they had faced and what they had been through and still being strong enough to talk about it, to want to do something to change it, to want to see, say, see something like this never happen again, um, that it really shows you their strength um, and, you know, what they went through and just how, you know, at the time you could tell just still in, just speaking to them, you know, how, how bad it was. And of course, you form this emotional connection with not only the people you interview, but with their stories. When you read the transcripts, you see, wow, this is terrible. I can't believe this happens. But when you speak to them in person and they say, they kept me in a basement for 17 hours, there's just this whole connection in your brain that you go, this happened to you. You're in front of me. I can't believe this happened. I had little girlfriends from the time I was an adolescent. But you kind of had to play the game. And even in high school, you knew that. So you had to have a boyfriend. Being gay was not a decision. It was just something that I never felt any other way. It's, it's like, uh, to me, it's completely natural. I mean, the idea of gay rights wasn't even on the radar back then. They were unthinkable back in 1960. Early on, I was just focused on being a student. 
and trying to get through the challenges of, of, of being at a large university by myself. It was a challenge just to focus on my studies. I was on the swimming team. I swam for the University of Florida. I was always interested in photography, too. I wanted to be a band director. My band director and his wife suggested FSU. I loved FSU until my sophomore year when all of the stuff happened to me then. I was by that time, of course, in Marching Chiefs and really having a great time. I was just being a student, active in music, played intramural sports. I think that's where they found me because a lot of the girls that played intramurals were lesbians. So I think that's why I was targeted. They took me into the basement of the administration building into a room and I was there for at least 15 hours. I think it was probably closer to 17 because it was the next day. During that time, I was not offered the opportunity to go to the bathroom, to have anything to eat, or to have anything to drink. In addition to on-camera interviews with survivors of the Johns Committee, producers of this documentary were able to acquire interviews with a former police officer who helped with the interrogations more than 50 years ago and regrets it now. John Charleston, he was was really great working with us. He really did seem to show just a great deal of remorse when he talked about it. And when he was approached about the film, He was excited and he contacted us and he said, yes, please, I want to tell my story. It's been 50 years, it's been too long, people should know. The person who actually got him to speak with us was Chuck Woods, who was a student who John Charleston had pulled out of class to interrogate and working with Chuck Woods, I mean, he's just that kind of guy. He was, he's very Mm -hmm. social and so he said, oh, I saw John Charleston, do you want me to get him to be in your movie? And we were like, Please, yes. <laughs> really excited about it. And just seeing them just chatting um, about not just the past, but, you know, the present and the future of LGBT rights. I mean, it was just amazing to see. And, you know, you could tell that Tylston had sort of made this sort of, I guess, emotional transformation since the original event happened. And I think he was, he did feel remorse about it. And, you know, he does have hope for the rights of minorities for the future. An entire honors class participated in the creation of the documentary called The Committee. Students Logan Grady, Monica Monticello, and Amy Simpson explained their roles in the process. I was one of the two co-producers of the film, um, and a lot of my work revolved around organizing um, the shoots, organizing what we would be doing with our money, how we can get from place to place um, for not just locations about where we're going to shoot background and B-roll, but also talking to the interviewees, talking to the handlers, reaching out to them and trying to see who would be willing to talk to us, who would want to talk with on talk with us on camera, and generally just checking up and making sure the rest of the teams were up to you know doing what they need to do as well. Um, but a lot of my day-to-day stuff was talking with people we were going to interview, whether they were survivors um, or John Tileston or other people down in South Florida um, and the authors, and just organizing the times and the locations of when we could go and where we could go interview them and make sure that that was available for us. Uh, I was on the script writing team and we were in charge of compiling all the transcripts from each of the interviews as well as conducting the interviews and coming up with the questions themselves. And later the task evolved into gathering photos and further evidence and then eventually writing the script itself. I was also on the script writing team and yes, it took involved many hours of reading over scripts and deciding what would go in, what wouldn't, and how to put that all together. I mean, it was like a big puzzle. Yeah. 
The committee has the look and feel of a professionally produced documentary, and the film is already getting a lot of positive attention. We've done a lot of community screenings so far, um, as well as now being accepted into some film festivals was kind of exciting for us because we'll be actually competing among, you know, quote-unquote bigger films and hopefully trying to get more of that uh, community support and outreach. People see us and know about us. Um, but we we competed at one um, specific festival or competition that had to do with uh, student-produced films, and that was with the Broadcast Educators Association. We, had to, we actually ended up winning an award from then, Best of Competition, and then we are competing at the Gasparilla International Film Festival in Tampa, and we'll be screening there, as well as um, doing a small panel presentation and screening of the film at a uh, honors conference that is also happening in Tampa at the same time. And we're, com- we're submitting to a few other film festivals, some that are LGBT-specific, some that are just general, just trying to get more of a word out there. We've got more plans to submit to more film festivals and hopefully get screened at them. Feelings about homosexuality are largely generational, with comfort levels increasing as the population's ages decrease. Still, Monica Monticello, Amy Simpson, and Logan Grady are very aware that gay rights are still a hotly debated issue today. I think one of the scariest things about this documentary, aside from the fact that it's only 50 years ago, is that we have this feeling that this could happen again. I mean, maybe it's not the attack on the LGBTQ students and teachers. Maybe it's an attack on a different minority. But it's what happens when one small group of elite just become obsessed with power and are corrupted by their power. And it's what the majority can do to any minority group. One of the questions we asked everyone we interviewed was, do you think this could happen again? And none of them said, no, never. I mean, it was all, you know, you can never say never to this kind of thing, and history does repeat itself. And um, when there's this feeling of fear, and especially when, you know, economics aren't doing very well and people are afraid of outside groups, that's when this kind of thing happens. And you can see that happening in our nation right now, and that's what makes it very scary, too. And even to bring it back to uh, the sort of the LGBT focus, you know, even though we've reached so many different strides and things have advanced since then, and gay people are more accepted right now, we're talking about gay um, adoption and marriage and things like that. Um, it, I mean, there's just that's just one portion of the entire spectrum. LGBTQ includes a lot of people. Trans people are still facing discrimination in a lot of realms today. Just last week, a trans woman was disqualified from a beauty pageant because she wasn't technically born female. So they're still facing things, even though we're making all these strides with um, specifically gay stuff, they're they're still facing all of the discrimination and issues. So yes, most certainly I think it could happen again today, and hopefully the point of this film is to educate people against, um, as you guys spoke about, you know, the majority um, repressing the minority. Whatever it is. The documentary The Committee is produced by honor students at the University of Central Florida and looks at the Johns Committee's efforts to eliminate homosexuality in Florida schools in the mid 20th century. When they began to arrest people, they found that they were arresting teachers, and they discovered that a number of the teachers had gone to the University of Florida. R.J. Strickland was the chief investigator for the Johns Committee. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about all of the great activities presented by the Florida Historical Society. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. 
This moment in Florida history features University of North Florida historian Michael Francis. In 1565, the Spanish crown granted Pedro Menendez de Aviles a remarkable series of concessions and incentives to accept the post of governor of La Florida. In exchange, Menendez had to promise to build two or three Spanish towns in Florida, each with at least 100 residents. His contract specified that he recruit no fewer than 500 men for his Florida enterprise, 200 of whom had to be married and take their wives with them. At least 100 of his recruits had to be farmers, with the remaining settlers to include skilled sailors and soldiers, as well as stonecutters, carpenters, farriers, blacksmiths, clerics, and surgeons. To ensure a vibrant and healthy colony, the Crown ordered Menendez to transport 100 horses and mares, 200 calves, 400 sheep, 400 hogs, and any other livestock that seemed fitting for Florida's climate. After so many failed Florida ventures, King Philip II wanted to ensure that Menendez had the personnel and the supplies necessary for a permanent and successful colony. University of North Florida historian Michael Francis. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Janie Gould of WQCS takes us to what's left of a 1910 fishing camp. A tile manufacturer from Chicago built a fish camp and lodge on the South Fork of the St. Lucie River in Stewart in 1910. His little colony included his own home and a caretaker's cottage. It was all on a dirt road. The road has never been paved, but now it has a name, Siesta Way off Palm City Road. Joanne Rollin owns the original settler's house now. The original caretaker's cottage is next door. And then the little house behind that was a lodge where the men would sit probably and have their cigars and drink their port and talk about their fishing and hunting expeditions. Tell their fish stories. Exactly. You were showing me a drawing of the original house that had barrel tile, and I guess that's because he was in that business, making tile. Yes, and that tile roof, as far as I know, lasted a long time because the roof was replaced in 2003. Not until then. Exactly, unless he put another tile roof on it, but it was a barrel tile roof. Was this one of the first fish camps in the area? It probably was. Have you been able to find anything in newspapers or books or anything like that, articles about Mr. Brown? I've tried to find information about him, but it's really hard having such a common name like that. Sandy Thurlow has found some information about him. That's the information that I know. He was married to a woman named Mary. 
Mary Brown. Yes, Mary Brown. <laughs> How common is that? Another name to Google. Joanne Rollin, a church musician at Palm City Presbyterian and a piano instructor, transformed the Browns' home into a Key West-style cottage. She painted it lavender to match the lavender clematis blooming outdoors. The interior has an eclectic mix of art and antiques and a collection of miniature pianos, many of them gifts from her students. She bought the house in 2004, just a few months before two hurricanes struck. There was no damage, no actual damage done to the house. Why do you think that was? Because it's made of Dade County pine. It's built to last. My son tries to hang a picture on the wall, and it's almost like hammering into concrete. Everything virtually is made of Dade County pine. The walls, the floors. And the outside siding. Inside the house is a post that was used for the original house. They used palm tree trunks to build the house with from uh, cabbage palms. When the house, as you see it now, was built, they left one of the palm supports in the mudroom so that you could remember how the house was originally built. What do you think it would have been like living here in 1910? I think it would be just absolutely glorious. I have a few pictures there was this huge expanse of land going to the river. The palm trees rustle. It's just a glorious place to live, even now. But then, it must have been fantastic. But I don't think they used it very much. I think the caretaker was here, but Mr. Brown didn't come down here very much. Probably only in January, February, and March. During the season. What do you think the Browns, Mr. A.W. and Mary Brown, what do you think they would think if they came back and saw this area today? Oh, they would probably be shocked. I would love to see the reaction when they see the kitchen. I'm sure there was no electricity. And there were no bathrooms. Just recently, my neighbor who owns the little house behind it. The original caretaker's house. Right. Found remnants of an outhouse. So the outhouse was just allowed to crumble. It hasn't been taken down. It's all covered with overgrowth. It'd be great if she found a door with the crescent moon on it. (laughs) Wouldn't it, though? Besides fishing and hunting, the early settlers apparently grew pineapples there. I planted some pineapple plants myself, and they do very well. Are they sweet pineapples? I mean, real edible? They're excellent. Janie Gould spoke with Joanne Rowland of Stewart, Florida. Bet you're going fishing all of the time. Baby, going fishing too. Bet your life, your sweet wife's going to catch more fish than you. Many fish bites if you got good bait. Oh, here's a little tip that I would like to relate. Many fish bites if you got good bait. I'm a going fishing, mama's going fishing, and the baby going fishing too. This is Florida Frontiers. We talk about honor as an ideal to be strived for. Bill Dudley has this look at what the concept of honor was in 19th century Florida. It's not opening doors for ladies and not cheating on exams. It is really a matter of your sense of yourself as others see you, saying, yes, you are who you say you are. University of Florida historian emeritus Bertram Wyatt Brown. His 1983 book, Southern Honor, Ethics and Behavior in the Old South, has long been considered a modern classic. For Wyatt Brown, honor goes beyond our modern superficial ideas of good behavior to a time before an era of strong government, when a person's credibility could be a matter of life and death in a frontier society. You must primarily defend your family and yourself, against any insults that people may throw at you. 
And if you're able to do that successfully, then you are who you say you are. But if not, if you turn out to be a liar, or you turn out to be a deceiver, and you have defrauded the neighborhood, then you are shamed, and you are ostracized, and you are nobody. Wyatt Brown believes not enough time has been spent studying honor, a concept that has had a profound effect on American life. The whole notion of honor is not much in the literature. There's very little in American history that deals directly with this ethic, and it is an ethic. There are rules and ways of behaving, and it's something very primitive. It goes way back. You'll find it in Homer and the Egyptians uh, back to the prehistoric times because it's in lieu of other kinds of law. The honor figures where there is no law or there is a weakness in the institutions. It becomes a question of defense of family and self. And the only people that one can really trust are those who belong to the family. And in some societies, say in Iraq, it would be those who belong to the same tribe. And hand-in-hand hand with the idea of honor is the notion of shame and rituals of shaming. And, of course, all the penalties that we associate with the Puritans uh, sitting in the stocks and so on are methods of shaming. And that was the primary punishment that was used, not incarceration, but actually to make that person visible for his evil by slitting his nose or cutting off his ear and in, of course, uh, Arabian societies, if he's a thief, uh, you cut off his right hand. To see how ideas of honor played out in everyday life, we need look no further than the Florida frontier of the 18th and 19th centuries and the people called crackers who settled here. In a violent and lawless time when stealing a man's property was considered a more serious offense than assaulting him, a code of honor was all-important, according to Florida Southern historian James M. Denham. It's really the notion of honor which is so important in Southern society. This rural society placed a high premium on personal truth, honesty. Certainly manslaughter carried lashes, but not assault and battery in, a, in the statutes of Florida. On the other hand, petty larceny or grand larceny would carry lashes, 39 lashes. These were public punishments, meant not only to act as retribution, but also to shame the culprit in a public way. It is a society that's based largely on connections to family. And so you develop this style of behavior, which is what we would consider pretty violent. The honor code of the society also created a, a sense of violence because it created a hypersensitivity to slights of any kind, to personal attacks uh, one way or another, or even the suggestion that you are something less than a, either a gentleman or a responsible, good human being. Just as our own Revolutionary War began with the British insulting the colonies by attempting to levy taxes, so the American Civil War began with Northerners attacking the foundations of Southern society. The North began to criticize slavery first the anti-slave trade and then slavery itself and then the attack on slaveholders as sinners. And the Southerners got more and more upset about this because that was violating their sense of themselves. And so slavery was the cause of the Civil War, but actually it's honor that pulled the trigger. In more recent times, although Lyndon Johnson and other leaders spoke often of our duty and national honor in Vietnam, the notions of honor and shame today seem outmoded. That is, until we find ourselves pitted against a culture whose core values seem alien to us. Americans were totally unaware of this concept. They go into an honor culture, which Iraq is, or any of those Middle Eastern countries. And gradually, the Americans, uh, the intelligence officers, and uh, some of the commanders began to understand how the system worked. 
and have been much more successful than those who just don't pay any attention to the culture. But the Americans had to learn. Historian Bertram Wyatt Brown. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit our website at myfloridahistory.org and join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.